Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. The Wise Traditions series continues as today I interview Sandeep Agarwal, founder of Pure Indian Foods and curator of the upcoming Butterworld exhibit. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. As the House and Senate are closely working out their differences between their versions of the Farm Bill, the bill is becoming closer to a reality. What's problematic is the House bill still contains an amendment written by Iowa Representative Steve King that takes away states' rights to pass laws on food and farming. The intention of the King Amendment is to block California from enacting an already passed law that mandates farm animals are given enough space to spread their limbs and turn around. The amendment also would take away states' rights to pass GMO labeling laws such as the ones passed earlier this year in Maine and Connecticut and the upcoming ballot initiative in Washington if it's passed. In order to prevent this dangerous amendment from getting in the Farm Bill, you need to contact the members of the Farm Bill Committee. The names and numbers can be found at the article on the Farm Bill at organicconsumers.org. More GMO news this week as the various lawsuits against Monsanto for their unauthorized release of the genetically modified wheat has been consolidated into one case in Kansas. Earlier this year, the USDA discovered a field in Oregon was growing Monsanto's wheat, which had never been approved for commercial production. Lawsuits over the unauthorized release of the wheat were filed in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Kansas over claims that the release hurt wheat prices and export markets, also seeking a class action status that other growers would join in. A panel of federal judges decided to merge the lawsuits into one. The panel decided on Kansas because several of the cases occurred there and it's close to where Monsanto is based in St. Louis, Missouri. It would be great to see Monsanto hurt close to where they live if the judges find in favor of the plaintiffs. And one other GMO story to present, the European Network of Scientists for Social and Environmental Responsibility an international group of over 90 scientists, academics, and physicians released a statement responding to claims from the GMO industry and some scientists, journalists, and commentators. The European Network statement said that claims saying there's no scientific consensus that genetically modified foods and crops are safe for health and the environment. As Monsanto was recently awarded the World Food Prize, this statement was released at an important time and hopefully gets some coverage to take away the attention from Monsanto's joke of a prize. Also, the FDA has finally admitted that arsenical drugs that were intentionally fed to chickens in conventional farming practices. This comes after years of the FDA saying that arsenical drugs are safe. The FDA is still trying to defend the use of the inorganic arsenic, saying that it's okay because only small amounts are given to the chickens. It never ceases to amaze me at the excuses the FDA can come up with, even when they're caught red-handed like this. And finally, the Food Safety Network launched an investigation regarding the authenticity of honey in supermarkets 
and found that over 75% of honey sold in stores are fake. Many of the products labeled as honey don't actually contain any pollen, which by definition means they're not honey. These products have also been cut with corn syrup and artificial sweeteners, which often go undetected. For a long time, I haven't trusted most honey found in supermarkets and prefer buying them directly from beekeepers so I can ask as many questions as I want. And now for the main course. With less than two weeks to go until the Wise Traditions Conference in Atlanta, this year at the conference, in addition to the regular speakers and exhibitors on nutrient-dense foods and natural health, there will be a traveling exhibit that will be open for the first time at Wise Traditions. The exhibit is called Butterworld and includes dairy artifacts from the 17th through 20th century from all over the world. Butterworld is curated by Sandeep Agarwal, founder of Pure Indian Foods, which makes grass-fed organic ghee and other traditional Indian foods. During the evening activities on Friday night of the conference, Sandeep will be giving a tour of his exhibit. Here now to talk about Butterworld, as well as his business, Pure Indian Foods, is Sandeep Agarwal. Sandeep, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me, and hello, everybody. I really appreciate what you're doing. I think this is perfect. Butterworld's the perfect thing for the Weston A. Price Foundation, for their Wise Traditions Conference, and I think also for the appropriate omnivore, because butter is a great thing for cooking both vegetables and meat, which both of us eat as omnivores. Mm-hmm. And, and butter has, has had a fascinating history. If you see uh, the history of food, butter is actually one food which has been used and enjoyed and treasured by humans all over the world uh, for in many, many different cultures for thousands of years. I guess that it, will be, uh, it will be hard to find any other food that has been uh, treasured by so many cultures at the same time. I agree. We'll talk a little bit about the upcoming Butterworld exhibit, but first, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of your background with how you got involved with making ghee? Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, so uh, how we started making ghee is uh, very interesting. Uh, in the U.S., my uh, main profession has been I'm an IT engineer, and uh, I'm um, MBA in finance. I used to work in Wall Street. I spent uh, 15 years uh, working in the IT industry and finance and consulting. And I used to spend quite a bit of time commuting from uh, my home in New Jersey going to New York City. My kids were young, and we used to feel that we need to spend uh, more time with the kids. And my business in India, my family business for uh, five generations, is actually ghee, which was started by my great-great-grandfather. And uh, we still have our business, uh, albeit a small business in India, of selling ghee. So we thought that uh, we want to give that a try, and... um, the idea initially was to import ghee from India and sell it in the United States. But I visited India, I uh, visited uh, different places. I had been introduced to organic foods in the U.S., and I had learned the benefits of the organic and pure foods. So that's what we wanted to do, uh, me and my wife, is to sell organic ghee. But in India, it's actually very difficult to procure organic ghee so we decided to actually make it locally in the U.S. So that's how it started in the U.S. about uh, five years ago. We started to make small batches and started to sell to uh, through our website and uh, through some stores. And we saw a great response. So here we are. 
What type of a role does dairy play in Indian culture? Dairy actually plays a very vital role, uh, particularly if you see that a big population of India for a few thousand years has been vegetarian. And uh, so it's not vegan, as we know that there are actually in no cultures in the world which have been vegan for a long period of time. But a lot of Indians, they actually survive and thrive on dairy. So people consume large amounts of milk and many, many different products that they make from milk. So yogurt is consumed uh, on a regular basis, butter milk, butter, and uh, also a form of uh, cheese called paneer, uh, which is kind of like a cottage cheese. That's very popular. And then ultimately ghee. So I would say that majority of Indians consume dairy in some form of the other on a daily basis. That's good to point out because I know some people think of India as a vegan culture. And of course, where we've very much learned that there are no indigenous vegan cultures is the Weston A. Price Foundation, which is doing the Wise Traditions Conference. What role has the Weston A. Price Foundation and the findings of Dr. Weston Price played in your business with making ghee and other nutrient-dense foods? Well, they've had a great impact because uh, I studied uh, the works of Dr. Price and I attended the conferences and learned the benefits of the fat-soluble vitamins and I started to think as to, uh, and then I, I can also read the uh, Indian, ancient Indian language Sanskrit. And I have a library full of Sanskrit books, which talk about dairy products and ghee and talk about various benefits that we derive from these uh, animal fats. So I started to think as to what is the connection between the two? What is the connection between what the ancient scriptures used to say and the work of Dr. Price. And I could see clearly that if Dr. Price is saying that vitamin A is so important because it has fat-soluble vitamins, uh, you know, vitamin A is important in the uh, animal fat, and the scriptures in India are saying that ghee, for example, is good for eyes, I could relate to that. Because, as we know, vitamin A is important for the eyes, in fact, that's how our retina gets the name, because vitamin A in the animal form is a retinol. So I started to make these connections, and then I learned that it's actually uh, really important for us to combine the ancient knowledge with the modern research. So that has impacted our business a lot, because we try to make the best quality ghee that we can, which is uh, only from the pasture-raised cows, only in season, organic, grass-fed, non-GMO, and uh, people appreciate that. And I know most people, I think, would know what butter is. The term ghee, they might not be as familiar with, although I think some of the listeners to this show are pretty savvy and know what it is. But for the listeners that aren't familiar with ghee or they've only heard the term, how would you explain what ghee is and how it differs from butter? Oh, sure. So let me uh, first explain you... uh, from a chemical composition perspective, and it will be very easy to understand. So let's say that we have milk, and we have cow's milk, which has anywhere between 3 and 4% fat. So when we are making cream from the milk, cream then has, say, about 40% fat. And from that cream, when we make butter, 
we are further concentrating that fat. And so butter has about 80% fat. It has 18% water. And it has 2% milk solids, which are the protein and the sugar. So what ghee is that it's made from butter by removing everything except the fat and the fat-soluble vitamins. So the butter, which had 80% fat, 2% solids, and 18% water, when it's turned into ghee, it becomes 100% fat. So there is no water, and there are no milk solids. So ghee is made by simmering butter, and after some time, there will be a separation of uh, fat from the rest of the butter. The water evaporates, and the solids settle to the bottom. So we take the clear liquid from the top, which is called ghee. I know one of the things that's taken out of the butter when it's made into ghee is the casein, which is a thing that some people have problems digesting, especially people that have celiac disease or gluten intolerance. Casein has a similar property to it. So I know that that's one of the advantages of ghee over butter. That really is. So there are people who are intolerant to casein, and then uh, there are people who can't handle lactose. So for all these people who could not enjoy dairy because of the casein and lactose issues, they can have ghee. In fact, ghee is the only dairy product that these people can have. And we have a number of customers all over the country who enjoy, and for the first time they are enjoying buttery taste in their food because otherwise they didn't have any, any other choice. Which is a very important thing to get in your diet, to have the buttery taste. One, it tastes way better than that fake margarine, but also it can be used for cooking so many things. Like I said earlier, you can cook your muscle meats in it, and there's a lot of nutrition in buttering your vegetables as well. There is a lot. It's very interesting you mentioned, and as you would uh, hear grandma saying that eat your broccoli with butter, there was a reason for it. Not only that the butter has its own nutrition, but the butter, the fat in the butter, helps to absorb the nutrients from your vegetable. So that's why when you cook your vegetables in butter or cook any other food in butter and ghee, then because of the uh, their lipid-soluble properties of the vegetables and the other foods, you assimilate those better in your body. This is the beauty uh, about butter and ghee, and it's very, uh, very, very clearly documented in Indian scriptures where a lot of medicines are made from ghee by infusing different spices and herbs into ghee and to use ghee as a carrier of the properties of these herbs in the body. When you're cooking, do you always use ghee or do you use butter? Sometimes it kind of depends on what food it is. Like some foods are better with cooked with butter, some yeah, foods sure. are cooked with ghee. No, that, that's interesting. You know, we do use, we do enjoy butter as a spread, but for cooking, we primarily use ghee because, as we know, that there is a difference in the smoke point of butter and ghee. If say you are cooking eggs, and if you cook it in butter, and if you are not very careful, then the butter, the solids in the butter can burn very quickly, giving it an off color and off flavor. Whereas with ghee, if you coat your pan with ghee. Ghee can handle temperature up to 485 degrees, so it's not going to burn that easily. So our preference is to use butter as a spread, but use, use ghee for cooking. That's a very important point to make because butter, while it does have a higher smoke point than, like, say, canola oil, still butter can 
burn if you let it cook for too high or you're not watching it. I know I've made that mistake before. Exactly. exactly. So, yeah, you know, if you're careful, you could do it. You know, on low heat, it's perfectly fine. But uh, the proteins, as you know, Aaron, that protein actually don't handle heat very well and they degenerate very easily. So there is still a little bit of protein left in butter, and that's why you want to be very careful while cooking with butter, that you don't want to use very high heat. Obviously, you know a lot about butter and about ghee with your business, and that leads us now to how you've created the Butter World exhibit that will kick off at Wise Traditions. What inspired you to create this exhibit? Yeah, it actually, I never actually had a plan. In fact, I uh, always talk to my family and friends that I actually used to hate history when I was in school and college. I said, who would want to learn what happened in the past? You know, you want to learn about science and technology and all the new stuff. Who has time to look into the past? What are you going to get out of that? And who wants to remember what happened in which year? And now here I am, so deeply interested in the history particularly the history about, uh, you know, the dairy products. And I think that how it got started is that when I uh, would sit down with my grandfather when he was still alive, and uh, he would tell me things about his business and how he did it, and I would try to learn a little bit. And later on, when I started to uh, study, uh, because then it was a different field for me to start this business because I had been a technologist. Uh, in my uh, earlier career. So I had to learn about not just how to sell ghee, but what it is made of, how to make it really good, what is the chemistry behind it. So I started to do a lot of reading. And in that process, I started to collect some old books. So that's how it got started. I would collect old books uh, about butter and milk and dairy in general. And then I would read those books they would have pictures of these various equipments that were used at that time, 100, 150, 200 years ago. So I was at a, uh, at a market, at a flea market, and I saw a small churn, and I got fascinated. So I purchased that, and that was the start. After that, I haven't looked mm-hmm. back, because one after the other, it just I started to acquire more and more stuff. And at some point of time, we said, you know, we got enough to uh, then, you know, take it and show it to people so that they can really appreciate it and understand the history. And that's how we are here after, you know, so many years of collection of different artifacts from all over the world. You talked about how your grandfather was in the ghee business. I know you're a third-generation ghee maker. Uh, was your father and grandfather, did they have a similar ghee business to what you have? Actually, uh, I'm the fifth generation because uh, it was my great-great-grandfather who started the business. So earlier, we would procure uh, ghee from small villages, and then we would sell it in uh, in our shop. Over the years, what happened is that making pure ghee in India became more and more difficult because of the adulteration problem. So later on, when I used to visit our shop when my grandfather was alive, we used to sell packaged ghee, but we would also sell some uh, bulk ghee where people will bring their own containers, and then we will measure the amount of ghee that they need and just you know pour into their containers and people will take it. But over the years, that business also has stopped in India. So it is all prepackaged ghee from many other different brands 
But in India, we don't sell our own brand of ghee. But when we started to do business in the U.S., we did it differently. We made uh, we made the ghee ourselves, and we uh, then sold it under our own brand. In addition to making the ghee yourself, have you tried churning your own butter? Oh, oh absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, we have learned the the whole process uh, ourselves. Although you know uh, we cannot do all of that ourselves, uh, you know, in the commercial business. But for our own purpose, we absolutely make uh, the butter. We actually do the whole process ourselves, which is to uh, the traditional Indian process of making uh, ghee and butter is, is that you will take the milk and then you will uh, boil it. This is how it's done in India. So when you boil the milk and you let it cool down, then there will be a layer of fat on the top of it. So you collect that layer of fat and then you add a little bit of yogurt culture to it. You let it ferment. And then in, when it ferments for a few days, then you take that collected fat and then you churn it and that becomes cultured butter. And then you take it to make it ghee. That's such a so beautiful... That, that, yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful process. It's absolutely delicious to have that very fresh-tasting cultured butter. I would say there's nothing like it in this world that tastes so good and also the ghee made from that. So that's an ancient uh, Indian process which I studied. That That's how it was made, although you know both of these processes are documented, where either you make the yogurt out of it or you make straight from cream to butter and then butter to ghee. And now I see that um, in a commercial business, there are many other ways to make ghee. There are ways to make ghee directly from the cream also, because cream has 40% fat, so they centrifuge it and make you know just concentrate the fat, and that becomes ghee. But it doesn't give, I guess, that kind of a taste that the traditional process gives. I know some people that like to make their own butter just by using the cream, but I think the process that you explained, like you said, it is the more traditional way of making it, and it just seems like taking more time to make it, that makes it more artisan and just makes it more true to its form. Absolutely, it does. And when I started to read Aaron the butter books, even in the United States, say 80 or 90 years ago, that's how all the butter was made, where the cream was separated from the milk and culture was added to the cream and they will let the cream sit and ripen and become a little bit acidic with that culture. And then that cream was churned next day or maybe after two days when it has attained the right acidity to make it into butter. So that, that used to be the process here in the United States as well, as I read in the books. And all of the butter used to be made that way. But obviously, with you know, more and more modern machinery and technology, and also in order to get the maximum profit, you need to get in and out the product really quickly. And that's how you make the best uh, profit. So in order to do that, businesses would invent ways where they could cut down a step from the process and offer a cheaper product. So I guess that's what had happened, that uh, butter was made without culturing the cream. But it, it, it was not always like that. So like in India, I guess everywhere in the world, they would let their cream sit and ripen before it was churned. How much food do you eat that's cooked with butter? 
That's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, if you combine uh, butter and ghee together, I would say that's you know bulk of our food. We also use uh, other wonderful fats and oils, which are olive oil and coconut oil. And see, in India, we also use um, sesame oil as well, a little bit. You know, although not too much. But you know, it's interesting that you asked me the question because when I came to the U.S., we were not like that. We had also bought into the whole uh, notion of that ghee is bad for you, it causes heart disease. And we used to use canola oil, trust me. When my parents were visiting us in the U.S., and my mom would serve the food and she would put ghee in the, uh, in the soup and on the bread and, you know, different foods, I used to argue with her in the sense that, no, you know, mom, if you don't want to eat this stuff, this is bad for us. And she would say, no, people have been eating this stuff for all along, and we never had these issues. So, no, that's okay. You know, it's okay to consume it. But, um, you know, my modern scientific mind would not agree with it until I started to do my own research. And then as a general awareness in the, uh, in the whole food world, where we are learning that it's actually not that bad. In fact, it's great for us. It's absolutely wonderful for us. So there has been a shift overall in our awareness, and I see that we have made a change in ourselves, and we feel much, much better. I've been at that point, too, where I thought that butter was bad for you and that it was great to cook things in canola oil as well as to consume these margarines, which are typically made from a canola oil or a soybean oil. And now, after what I know, it just gets me at how anyone was able to ever get us to believe that these oils that are high in omega-6 like canola and the fake butters, the margarines, how anyone could ever convince us that these were healthy is, it's like the great canola, as I think it's called. <laughs> and, and, you know, in, in part is, is all the marketing. And that's what I started to do with the butter word that we wanted to show not only that what dairy industry did, but we also wanted to show what margarine industry did to promote their products. So I started to acquire the uh, various artifacts from the margarine industry. So we have one of the largest collection of old tin cans of margarine. So we have many, many different brands. In fact, I did not even know that there were so many companies making hydrogenated fat, vegetable fat products uh, in the United States. Uh, so we got, like, I think at least 50 different brands of cans in our collection, which, you know, some of these date, like, 70, 80, 100 years. And uh, they are, some of them, really bad shape. But I guess you know, they would uh, really help people see that what kind of marketing these companies were using, where the terms like digestible, and pure and creamier. I mean, many, many adjectives were used to describe these products. And beautiful pictures of, uh, you know, healthy children, uh, families having a meal together, uh, which is cooked in this hydrogenated fat, and books after cookbooks after cookbooks that I have collected, which shows every recipe that how your baked product can be flakier, how your uh, sauces could be creamier, just by using uh, hydrogenated fat, by, by replacing butter with the margarine. 
And I saw in one of your interviews, in addition to collecting these old margins, you also had a Crisco container because Crisco was one of the earlier products that we made with vegetable oil. And at that time, they thought it was better for you than cooking in the animal fats. Now, not so much. Now, I don't think anyone views Crisco as a health food, yet they still view margarines like the Smart Balance, Earth Balance. And <laughs> that really gets me at how those foods are basically the same thing, yet one is viewed as good for you and the other is viewed as unhealthy. Okay, yeah, yes, absolutely. And it's it's all about marketing again. What we see, Aaron, is that the butter industry, actually there was no industry because butter was made by small farmers who did not have enough money to answer the marketing propaganda by the vegetable oil industry at that time. Because the vegetable oil was made by big factories and big corporations, and butter was made by your local farmer. So when the uh, margarine industry would hire a scientist in white coat saying that this stuff is good for you, and butter is not good, and it's not clean, and it's, it's basically something of the past, we could not, the butter industry, since there was, there was no collective industry, it could not answer that. And that's where we sort of lost the ground and let the other industry come up and people adopted it because it was, first of all, much cheaper, as you know. So I know in India, they used to sell vegetable ghee, which is, again, the hydrogenated fat, and it was sold at one-sixth of the price of pure ghee. So if you have a can of vegetable ghee, where the word vegetable is written in small letters and ghee is written in bold letters and it tastes like ghee, it smells like ghee and it's sold as one-sixth or one-eighth of the price, why would you not buy it? I know another thing with the dairy industry at the time that these margarines were being introduced was this was when the dairy industries were starting to be moved into the cities away from the farms and there was a lot that was being reported about the dairy industries about how unsanitary that they were, and that was what led to then making all of our milk pasteurized. Do you think that that's another reason that these companies making butter weren't able to defend themselves from the margarine industry was just the whole trouble with the dairy industry at that time with the unsanitary conditions? Which is absolutely correct, and I agree with you that there, I, I read in the books and advertisements that people would actually find Pieces, pieces of hair in the butter because think of a farmer who is doing all of the process on the farm and you know there are obviously you know dogs is there the cat is there and the horse and you know all the animals and there is a small little barn where all the process is being done milk is collected it is filtered and and cream is separated and butter is churned absolutely you that's not a very sanitary um, it may not be a very sanitary uh, condition, but the thing is that if it was done in a small scale, it could be done in a clean way. If it is you know, done on a daily basis and the farmer is you know, uh, keep, keep, taking care in producing the highest quality, but if you try to do it on even a, bit, a little bit larger scale and don't have the right equipment, you may not get the right product. And so, you know, absolutely, customer may have complained that it's not a clean product, and the vegetable oil industry took advantage of that. And they advertised their product as clean, and people adopted it. We'll talk more with Sandeep Agarwal about Butter World 
and pure Indian foods. But first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website, organicsproutedflour.net, or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea States Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Alea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email. K-A-R-L at oleastates.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. I'm interviewing Sandeep Agarwal. He's the founder of Pure Indian Foods, which makes ghee and other nutrient-dense foods. And Sandeep also is going to have the Butterworld exhibit at the Wise Traditions Conference coming up in about less than two weeks. We've been talking a little bit about Sandeep's background, how he learned about the advantages of ghee and butter over cooking in vegetable oils and gave a little preview as to him starting up a butter world. So I'd like to talk now more about the butter world exhibit. What are some of the artifacts that people should look for there? Oh, sure. So uh, we have collected artifacts from various stages, what the milk goes through, where it is converted into different products. So let's start from, say, milking. When the... uh, cow is milked, there used to be, I have a couple of milking stools, you know, which are small, uh, a stool, a three-legged stool where the person who is milking the cow would sit on, and I have a metal stool, and I also have a beautiful, uh, very, very old wooden stool where the person would sit. Now, imagine that if you're sitting on a stool with a bucket in front of you, and you're milking a cow. And say you milk the cow, and the bucket is about half full, and then cow moves, and then the bucket uh, tumbles, and all the milk is basically down the drain. So what they invented is, it's a wonderful uh, piece of art, is a stool which has a metal ring attached to it, where you would actually fit the bucket that you are using to collect the milk. And then when you sit on the stool, the bucket is actually stationary. It's not going to move. Even if the cow moves or you know, does something, the, the, the bucket is going to stay and your milk is not going to go waste. So uh, this is, I think, about 150 years old. And we have some old equipment where the milk will be separated into cream and, 
uh, and uh, skim milk just by the virtue of gravity. So it's a large container with a small window just to see that separation line. So the cream will come on top and the skim milk will be at the bottom. And then there is a cap at the bottom to take the skim milk out very carefully just by the action of gravity. And what you would have left on the top is the cream. And uh, after that, so that's milk and the cream, and then it comes to butter. So we got many different butter churns. And butter churn is absolutely fascinating when you see the history of butter churns because that was one equipment where a lot of invention took place, um, say in about 70 or 80 um, years in the 20th century, where people were inventing newer and newer butter churns to make it a more efficient process. So churning butter was not easy. You know, if you do it manually, if you have done it manually, you know that it's uh, it takes time. It, it requires patience. And sometimes it, the butter just doesn't come out. You keep churning and keep churning, keep shaking. The butter does not come out. So as we now know that it has to have the right temperature, the right consistency to have the butter come out. So one interesting churn we have is, is called the Osborne churn. And why it is so unique is that at that point, people used to believe that if the butter does not come out of the uh, cream, is because there is a witch called butter witch in the, in the cream, which does not allow the butter to come out. So they would take a horseshoe, heat it up, and throw it in the cream, and the butter will come out. And they used to think that that will kill the witch. But the thing is that as we know, that the cream was not at the right temperature and putting the hot, red hot horseshoe would raise the temperature of the cream and that would help the butter to come out. So there was a churn where there was a way for you to pour water in the outer layer of the churn, either hot water or the cold water, to control the temperature of the cream and to facilitate the uh, churning of the butter. And that would be called a churn that would uh, tackle the cream rich. So we have that churn also in our collection that we'll be showcasing in the Western Unified Conference. And we have uh, many different uh, butter mold. So butter was actually cherished and sold uh, with a lot of design, not just like a plain butter brick, but people would stamp it with their... Uh, with their own design, and the way it was done is, is that there will be a mold um, or a design made of uh, wooden block. You would put your butter in there, and you will press it, and the butter will acquire your design. So we have many various uh, butter molds in our collection. Along with that, we have an interesting uh, collection of milk bottles. One of them is called a cream top bottle, which is an interesting shape. It has... Uh, it allows you to get the cream from the whole milk just by using that bottle. And the way it works, Aaron, is that you would leave your raw milk in the bottle. And as you know, after a few hours, the cream is on the top part of the any container if it has not been homogenized, right? Right. So, so in this bottle, the cream will come on the top, and there is a special spoon that is used to block the skim milk from coming out. So you could just basically, by using the spoon, special spoon, on the special bottle, 
you could take the cream out without taking out the skin milk, which which I think was a great innovation at that time. So we have several of those bottles in our collection that we will be showcasing and demonstrating. What's the oldest item that you have in the collection? Uh, the oldest item um, is a book that we got from England. Uh, it was printed in 1662. And this is uh, from the uh, the British Parliament. There was a ruling that was made about the adulteration of butter and also to ensure that there is no mixing of any substance in butter and also how butter needs to be properly weighed so that the consumer gets the proper amount and the quantity of the butter. So this is one of our oldest artifacts. It's about 400 years old. So a lot of different items from different eras, different centuries, and all over the world. How did you go about collecting all these artifacts? So uh, I actually uh, uh, visit different places. So uh, obviously, Internet is a great resource. There are many different websites that sell different antiques. But obviously, you got to be very patient with these websites. You, know, you cannot just go and buy something. you got to wait for uh, the item, and you have to study it. You have to find its right value. So I spend quite a bit of time to uh, understand the value of the item. So I buy from the uh, internet. I buy from different auctions. I also visit different places. For example, I was visiting India last year. So I collected some items from there. I would just go and visit uh, different shops, different uh, flea markets, and just acquire. So it is a very cumbersome time-consuming process. Uh, but I think it's, it's worth it because uh, we have... Uh, many gems in our collection now. And how long has this exhibit been in the works? I would say about three years. And as I mentioned to you in the beginning, that there was actually no plan to even have a collection. I just had few items, just uh, out of my own interest. And then when we had a sizable collection, that's when we thought of exhibiting. So, yeah, it started about three years ago. And I know that for the Wise Traditions Conference, in addition to the butter exhibit, you also have a special exhibit on cod liver oil. Tell us a little about that. Sure. So, um, yeah, cod liver oil uh, is obviously not directly related to uh, dairy industry as we know, but both uh, dairy products and cod liver oil, they both are rich in fat-soluble vitamins. So uh, we also wanted to showcase the history of cod liver oil, and since I was visiting different places to uh, uh, check out these antiques, I saw some artifacts about the cod liver oil industry, so we acquired some of those items as well, and some of these are some very old bottles with their paper label still intact, which is describing the benefits of cod liver oil which also mentions uh, the vitamin A and vitamin D content, how important they are for you. Then we got a spoon. It's a special spoon we got from England, and it's very interesting. So uh, it's a metal spoon, and on the back of it is a screw, which is used to open the cork, uh, because at that time the uh, colloidal bottle will have a cork top. So the same spoon is used to... Uh, the cord, the the, uh, the screws used to open the cork, and the spoon is used to take the cod liver oil. 
And uh, it's a beautiful piece uh, that we have, uh, which I think at least 150 years old. And for the people that won't be able to attend the Wise Traditions Conference, where are some places that the Butterworld exhibit will be going to afterwards? So we do have plans to uh, showcase our exhibition at many other places. Right now we are a traveling exhibit, which means whenever we find an appropriate venue, we will bring our exhibition to uh, that venue and showcase our artifacts. So uh, the one way to connect with us is via our website, which is butterworld.org. If your listeners have any suggestions or if they are interested in arranging an exhibition at their uh, venue, they can get in touch with us and we'll be happy to discuss. So we are a traveling exhibit. We don't have a permanent museum at this time, but we certainly have plans to do so in the future. But right now, butterworld.org, and we are also on Facebook and Twitter, and we also have an email list that people can join from our website. And if the cod liver exhibit of this Butterworld is successful, do you think you would put that in some of the other places that Butterworld tours? Oh, absolutely. So if um, we have to see the appropriateness of the um, the venue and the theme, obviously Western A prices understand the importance of both dairy products and the cod liver oil. So it is a no-brainer. And based on the request, we can certainly include the cod liver oil exhibit as well. Absolutely, without a doubt. In addition to Butterworld, we talked about earlier that you also have the business Pure Indian Foods, which is known primarily for ghee, but I know that you sell a number of other nutrient-dense foods on your website. What are some of the other products that people can get through Pure Indian Foods? So we also sell uh, many different ingredients that get used in uh, an Indian cooking. Um, some of these are the spices. As you know, the heart of Indian cooking is from its organic spices like turmeric, coriander, cumin, cardamom. So we sell all these uh, very high-quality organic spices. We also sell spiced ghee, which is spices and herbs infused in ghee. And then we have a wonderful product, which is coconut ghee, which is a 50-50 blend of our organic ghee with organic virgin coconut oil which is also very popular because it, it gives you the benefit of both ghee and the coconut oil in one product. In addition to the spices that people can buy through the Pure Indian Foods website, are there any other products that you sell? Yeah, we sell uh, many different ingredients that are used in Indian cooking. And uh, so we have organic spices, we have spice-infused ghee, where we have six different blends of spiced ghee. One such ghee is digestive ghee, which is ghee infused with cardamom, cinnamon, and ginger. Then we have a garlic ghee, and we have four other kinds of ghee products. We also have some coconut oil products. We sell uh, virgin organic coconut oil. And then we sell a coconut ghee, which is a 50-50 blend of virgin coconut oil and 50% ghee. Are there any foods that you like to use butter with that people may think, well, you can't have butter with that type of food? Actually, what I've seen more and more is that people using butter and ghee in their coffee. Now, you would not have thought of using butter or ghee in your coffee, but actually, if you try it, you will really uh, uh, like it. Uh, you know, I can uh, say for myself that I, I used it, although I don't drink much coffee, but uh, whenever I do, I add some ghee. In fact, I add my coconut ghee into it, 
and I really like it. And we have a great following in the paleo world where people drink coffee with uh, butter and coconut oil. And now they just add uh, our coconut green to their coffee and they absolutely love it. So this is something that you would not have think of, thought of using butter in, but people enjoy it. And if you see the history, people actually have been using ghee and uh, butter in their tea and coffee for a long time, especially in, uh, uh, in, um, in the Himalayan region, in Nepal, Tibet, and China, and Bhutan. They have a tradition of using yak butter in their tea. In addition to cooking with butter, I know you had mentioned how you sell some other types of oil, such as uh, the coconut oil, and you know there's also uh, an almond oil. What foods do you think are better for cooking with oil, such as coconut oil, olive oil, almond oil, versus cooking with ghee? So um, I would say that those foods which require uh, cooking at high temperature, you certainly want to stay with more saturated fats, and uh, ghee being about 65% saturated, about 32% unsaturated, monounsaturated, and about 3% polyunsaturated. That's a great choice. And also those foods where you would like a buttery taste. Ghee is absolutely wonderful for that. And for things which require low heat, I would say coconut oil is great, and we also use olive oil. But again, we are very careful of not heating olive oil too much. Because as we know, especially with extra virgin olive oil, you have to be careful. And there are certain dishes which we make in Indian food. Uh, particularly, there is one uh, that my wife makes is called bitter gourd. It's a bitter vegetable. And that's typically made in mustard oil because mustard oil is very sharp in taste and that vegetable is bitter. So somehow they combine very nicely and it's always made in mustard oil and it tastes great. Mustard oil, wow, that's uh, one actually I'm not familiar with, but I'm interested yeah. to find out yeah, about because I, like I do like mustard. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah, it is uh, very, very sharp and pungent, and it, 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 it has an acquired taste, but uh, I guess people who are used to eating it, they absolutely love it. Wow, well, it's something new for me to try, and that's one also that you have to heat very lightly when you're using? Yes, yes, exactly. So that is a cold-pressed oil. So it should be uh, used on low heat. And typically what we would do is that we would use a small amount of oil during cooking. And then once the food is cooked, then pour a little bit more on top of it. So that gives you the best benefit. Is it something that can also be used for making raw things like, say, a salad dressing? You bet. So mustard oil, olive oil, they are great for salad dressing and sauces. And then I would use coconut oil and ghee for cooking. I would say so, too. I think really that's the best advantage of the olive oils is using them for raw things like your salad dressings or to perhaps marinate something like a steak. But when you start actually heating up the olive oil, it seems like pretty easy for it to hit a, a point where there's smoke and then it can go rancid. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what I find more and more and when we talk to people is when people come to our booth and we ask them, what oil do you use for cooking? Obviously not in the Western Price conferences, but in some other conferences and trade shows that we go to. And people say, oh, it's extra virgin olive oil. So they do not realize that for cooking, it's actually better to cook with the cheaper olive oil rather than the more expensive extra virgin olive oil because you, you do not want to heat the extra virgin olive oil. Um, so because that, uh, I have read, is that very bad for your health. 
then you cook with extra virgin olive oil at heat. So I would use the cheaper, the yellow color olive oil for cooking. I would use the more expensive, the dark green extra virgin olive oil in salads and dressing and for marination. Wow, that's something actually I hadn't heard either. I know with all olive oil, you have to also be very careful about who you source your olive oil from because I've read about how a lot of olive oils that are sold now are fake. That's exactly right. And we also learned about this uh, recently, and there is a lot of information coming out. Particularly, there is a book that came out titled Extra Virginity that talked about the uh, olive oil industry and how a lot of uh, olive oil that's coming to the United States, it actually may not be pure olive oil, which was very shocking to us. Extra Virginity is a book that a lot of people in the olive oil industry recommend to read. For those of you interested in getting Extra Virginity, the full title of it is Extra Virginity, The Sublime and Scandalous World of Olive Oil, and it's written by Tom Mueller. It's available on Amazon. We're just about out of time, but before we go, Sandeep, give the listeners the address where they can find the website for Pure Indian Foods and also give them again the address where they can find the website for Butterworld. Oh, absolutely. So our uh, website for our ghee and other products is pureindianfoods.com and our phone number is 1877-LOVE-GHEE, which is 877-L-U-V-G-H-E-E. And our butter collection website is, butter uh, antiques collection website is butterworld.org, which is butterworld, W-O-R-L-D, And uh, we are also on social media. You can uh, go to Facebook, type in either Pure Indian Foods or Butterworld, and our Facebook page will come up. Please uh, visit our page and like us and connect with us. And if you have any suggestions, uh, please reach out to us. For the Butter Collection, we are also looking for a donation of any antiques that you may have. And if you are looking to donate, we will really appreciate it, and we will credit you in our collection. So uh, I know that, you know, a lot of people who inherited old stuff from, say, maybe uh, their grandparents or parents, and they don't know what to do with it. But if you think that it was a derivated product, an antique, which you don't have any use for, we will happily take it. Sandeep, I hope you keep up the great work. I really appreciate what you're doing with the Pure Indian Foods and with the Butter World exhibit, because as it's been said, butter was framed, and people don't know the true health benefits of butter and how it really is a superfood. So I want to thank you again and tell you how much I appreciate everything that you're doing. So, uh, thank you so much for having me, Aaron. And uh, it is our pleasure to uh, be able to come up with great products and also with this collection to educate uh, people about it. And if uh, we are successful, then people will really understand the uh, true benefit of these traditional daily products. Thank you so much again. Thank you, too. For those of you attending the Wise Traditions Conference, be sure to check out the Butterworld exhibit. And for those of you that won't be able to make it, you can go to his website and Facebook page and see updates of where the Butterworld exhibit will be traveling next. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. Tomorrow, October 30th, Suzanne Peters will be teaching a class at the Unity of Pasadena on healing foods. Suzanne will talk about what foods are best for keeping the cold away, and what foods are good for your digestive system, joints, and brain. The class will be filled with lots of great food to taste and recipes to take home. Again, the class will be held at the Unity of Pasadena, and it starts at 7 p.m. 
Also, if you want to learn how to make sourdough bread and starter cultures, there are two great classes to learn how. First, the Institute of Domestic Technology will be holding a two-day workshop at the Zane Gray Estate in Altadena on bread making starting on Saturday, November 2nd. You'll learn how to grind fresh flour, create a wild yeast starter, and make fermented rye bread, along with learning how to make pizza, tortillas, pretzels, and crackers. For more information, go to instituteofdomestictechnology.com. And the Culture Club 101 in Pasadena has a class on learning how to make einkorn sourdough bread. You'll learn all about making real sourdough with the original wheat. You'll get to take home your own starter culture, as well as learn how to make bread, muffins, and more. To register for the class, go to cultureclub101.com. For a more detailed list of events going on in the Pasadena and Los Angeles area, visit the Weston A. Price Pasadena website at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com and check out the community calendar. That's all for this week of the Appropriate Omnivore. Next week, I interview the final Wise Traditions speaker as I talk to Joanne Groman, author of Keeping a Family Cow. For more information on my guests as well as to listen to past episodes, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you. Thank you.